We've been uh, working for the last uh, several months on memorizing the verse in the book of Hebrews that uh, we, we consider to be the key verse. That's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And we've uh, given people an opportunity to stand up and recite it. Has uh, anybody had the uh, opportunity or success in committing that verse to mind? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. All right, so we'll have the privilege of doing it together again. And uh, the hope is, as we, as we uh, recite it again and again, that we will find uh, success in committing this verse to memory. And uh, you'll get a few weeks break before uh, I speak again. So you'll have some more time to memorize it before next time. Uh, Luke, can you have the verse up for us? We'll go ahead and say it together. Right, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Good job. When I was in Yosemite this last year, I had an opportunity to do something I haven't done in a long time, which is light a campfire. Get a picture up there. It's not the campfire I lit, but uh, it's nice to have an image. And uh, so I had to kind of recall to mind what it is that you do when you light a fire. And of course, some people cheat, and they just, you know, pour a bunch of lighting fluid on top of the wood and <laughs> you light it up. And that usually works pretty good. But uh, those of us that are old-fashioned, as myself, uh, we like to just try to use matches, and ideally a single match. And uh, so one of the keys I found was to take those, you know, a few thick pieces, because that's what will sustain the fire, and you kind of lean them together. And then you uh, tack some paper underneath. And then you add some you know, smaller pieces of wood, twigs, uh, to the mix. And uh, you light it up. And as the paper you know, goes up in flame, it usually creates a nice big bonfire for a few seconds. Uh, it catches the little twigs. And as the twigs get consumed fairly quickly, hopefully, the fire got transferred to those big, thick logs. Right? And that's what will keep the fire burning. Now, sometime, what happens over time is the fire will die down a little bit, and you won't actually see very much of a fire. But there's still fire. There's, there's going to be embers alive inside of those big, thick pieces. And uh, all you need to do, if you want to start the fire again, you don't have to use paper or matches. You add a few, maybe more logs, and you blow. You blow on the embers, and that's lights the fire again, right? And, and as we uh, go through the book of Hebrews, we, we recognize that this is what the author is doing, right? You have believers, the true believers, and uh, the fire is in. Uh, the fire, uh, today we'll think about it as, as God's, uh, as a love for God, right? That's what God does in our lives. God, God reveals his love to us. And when we receive that love, we believe that love is real, we are saved. 
and something wonderful happens. Our love springs from our heart to God, and that love is the fire as it's being expressed in our lives. But sometimes that fire will kind of die down, and you're not going to see very much love in our lives, which isn't a good thing, but it's just a reality, right? As it happens in the lives of the Hebrews, so in our life, the love of God, or at least the expression of it, gets diminished, and uh, God wants to stir that love up again, right? He wants to see that love in, in living colors, right? In action, as we were talking today, uh, many things that we're doing around here at the church, many things you got an opportunity to see in the slide, actions that we're doing, things we're doing out of love for God, God wants to see that, right? He, you know, I don't think my wife gets tired of me telling her that I love her. Even better if I show it in some action, right? In the same way, God is never tired of seeing our love for him, and he wants to stir it up again. And so as we, we look at the author doing it in the letter of the Hebrews, we're hoping the same thing is happening, happening in our lives. God is stirring up our love to him. And, and it finds new expression in our lives. With that, we'll turn to our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 6. We'll start in verse 1. We already covered verse 1 through 3, so I'll just touch on those, and we'll move on to uh, the substance of the message. So uh, Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But it, if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. First we see uh, God's love being revealed to those who reject him in verses uh, 4 through 6. But as we look at that passage, we want to remember that um, this is um, not the state of the people to whom this letter is written. And we'll see that clearly in the passage. But in verses 1 through 3, the author is saying he's not going to get into the gospel essentials. Right? He says, leaving the, elementary the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, and he lists, lists a number of doctrines. He says, I'm not going to go into those, but I'm rather going to go into perfection. 
And we talked about how last time those things were, again, preliminary doctrines or things that you need to be saved. But he wants to go into perfection that is a, a, a better appreciation of Christ and who Christ is. And in this person, he explains why he's doing it. He's saying there's no value in going back to those old truths. Now, you know, we sing, uh, I forget the name of the hymn now, should have written it down, just came to me. But I think sing them, sing, uh, sing them again to me over again. You know, we, we often like hearing and being reminded of the gospel truth as believers. It's a cause of worship as we think again of what it is that Christ has done for us. But if somebody has, has uh, come to uh, an understanding of the gospel and rejected it, there isn't a lot of value in just telling them the gospel. Again, they already heard it. And that's what he gets into in this passage. And he lists all the things they've experienced. And as, as, we, as we go through those, uh, we want to think of, uh, of the fact that God is trying to woo the person. I kind of had a picture of that. Uh, you know, when I uh, became interested in my wife and considered that maybe she was available, I found different ways of trying to show her that I love her. I may, maybe brought her flowers or took her out uh, to a restaurant, right? That's, that's what you, you do, you know, as a man to, to show a woman that you love her, right? In, in the hope that she'll return that love, right? You don't know. She might say, you know, thank you very much, but I have, you know, somebody else in mind, right? There's no guarantee that it will succeed. But in a similar way, God tries to win people over to himself. He shows his love to people. He's, he is, if you would, the gentleman, right? The one who will show, reveal his love first. Often where people are very nervous as they're, you know, I'm interested in this person. Well, are they also interested in me? Well, maybe I don't want to tell them I'm interested in them because maybe they're not interested in me. And that'll hurt my feelings when they tell me that. And so I won't. God is not like that, right? God is, just comes out and opens his heart to us, right? He reveals his love up front and gives us the opportunity to hurt him by rejecting him, right? So uh, that's what we think, we'll think about as we go through the passage here in verse, verse 4 and through 6. It says, For it is impossible for those who once were enlightened, so that's the first thing God does in his love to us, is he opens our eyes, right? He, he helps us understand the truth of the gospel. Right? The truth of the gospel is that God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, he sent Jesus into the world, and in, once in the world, he, he uh, died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins, and he rose from the dead. That was all in love for us, because God loved us. He opens our eyes to that fact, right? It's not you know, something that the natural man sees. God has to open. So he will actually come and help people understand that, that truth of, of the gospel. It says, and I've tasted the heavenly gift. What does it mean that they, they tasted the heavenly gift? Well, the heavenly gift is God himself, right? He gives us a relationship with himself. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Really, he is the heavenly gift, right? And so he will come near to a person and let that person have a sense of his, his goodness, his presence, his love, right? God will be drawing a person to himself by by, by reveal, giving a person a sense of that relationship God wants to have with him. And have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, for the believer, he comes in 
and he stays forever, right? The, the Holy Spirit will not live. But even with, with unbelievers, as God is working in their hearts, the Holy Spirit becomes involved in the works. And here it says the person can actually become a partaker of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Bill, in his, uh, in his book, uh, I think it's called Be Holy, talks about different stages of, of, of holiness. And he actually has a term there for pre-salvation sanctification. And it's the fact God will often work in a person's life before that person is saved and bring him to a certain measure of holiness the person would not naturally experience. And that was an experience I had. I came to know the Lord roughly 20 years ago. And I had an addiction to sin uh, before I was saved. And surprisingly, about two or three months before I was saved, I experienced victory over this addiction. All of a sudden, I didn't need it. I didn't want to do it anymore before I was saved, right? It's the partaking of the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't guarantee a person will be saved if you experience it, but we'll see that. But, uh, but God loves us so much that he will, you know, come into our lives and work in our lives to draw us to himself and have tasted the good word of God. So this is, you know, the Bible is the good word of God. And he, he tells us of God's love for us and God's plan for us. But it's, it's a dark book to the unsaved, right? It says the, the natural man cannot see the things of God, right? Yeah, Jesus told uh, Nicodemus that um, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So God has to open the Bible to a person to show them the good plans he has for them, and he will do it with a person who is unsaved. Again, to show that person his love uh, for them. And the powers of the age to come. I remember when I came um, to church before I was saved, I, I was seeing something new. I was seeing uh, people living by the word of God and, uh, and showing love to one another. Uh, and uh, that's the powers of, of the age to come. This world, uh, the power that reigns is that of the sword, right? People will, will have power over people through fear. In the church, it's different. There's the power of love, right? He who is greatest among you, let him become your slave, right? We, 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 we serve from the bottom up. The elders are the ones who are laying down their lives, right, to try to minister to the saints. And we minister to one another. Right, we show one another love. And an unsaved person comes into the church and he sees that love, right? He's getting a taste of the power of the age to come. This is God's plan for the future, love. People serving one another out of love. There's no fear here, right? There's just love. Okay. Um, if they fall away. So God has been working. God has been wooing a person to himself. And what does it mean for them to fall away? Well, falling away would be ultimately denying Christ, right? So in the days of the Hebrews, uh, there was persecution going on. And I can imagine somebody being involved in this process, right? He's, he's, he's been interested in Christ, right? He has a friend who's invited him to church or been sharing the word of God with him. And God is alongside with that person. He's working in, in this, this new person's life drawing him to himself, and that person seems to be becoming part of the church. He, he makes a profession, perhaps, of, of trusting in Christ and being a Christian, but now persecution has a reason. And uh, Nero is, is angry against the Christians, or he blames the Christians, 
for the fire of Rome, and our persecution is coming up. And our members of the church, probably especially the leadership, is getting dragged to jail. And uh, other people have their, their, uh, um, their uh, possessions uh, taken away from them by, by the Romans, by the establishment. Right? And all of a sudden, suffering and persecution has come into your life, and you're saying, what's happening here? What's going on? Is this what it means to believe in Jesus? I want to have nothing to do with it. Right? And the person turns away from Christ, denies Christ, and, and we're not talking here about a person who, you know, perhaps to save his life or that of his family, you know, will say, oh, well, I don't really believe in Jesus, but he actually really does believe. Right? So it does happen where people will... will they can make a false profession, people can make a false denial. <laughs> right? They truly believe, but in a moment of weakness like Peter, right? I don't know this man. Right? Well, Peter still believed in Jesus. Right? But here's a person who really rejects Christ now right? and says, I want to have nothing to do with Jesus. I don't believe he's really the Son of God. I don't believe he really died for my sins. I don't believe he really rose from the dead. I don't believe he's really God's Savior, and he's certainly not my Savior. Right? A person denying Christ in this way, that's what it means to fall away. Right? You came in, now you've fallen away. And what it says here, it's impossible if they, for those who were once and had all these experiences, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Uh, it's in my mind, it's a picture. Remember the picture of the fire, right? I'm starting this fire, and I've used all this uh, paper and all these twigs. But somehow it didn't catch right? Those big logs, they didn't light on fire, right? That's what happened. It's, it's, if you would, it's like a failed attempt. But God gives it everything he has, right? He gives everything he has to try to show his love to that person and bring that, bring that person to himself. And that person now rejects him. What it says here, it's now impossible to bring them again to repentance. God can no longer save this person, right? He, he's tried everything he has, Right? He revealed his love as much as his love can possibly be revealed. And this person is ultimately saying no. Right? Now it adds here, it's uh, a reason, it says, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. It's a difficult expression. And I was trying to understand what does it mean that they're crucifying again for themselves the Son of God. And uh, I think it helps if we think about, well, you know, what did the crucifixion of Jesus mean, right? Why was Jesus crucified? And we can turn to Matthew chapter 26. I'll have the verses up there. And look at, at really what happened there, what it is that decided Jesus' crucifixion. And he, was, uh, he went up on a trial. We studied this not too long ago in the Encounters for Jesus class. This is a trial Jesus is in at the very end, right before the crucifixion. And in this trial, he's standing before the Jewish leadership, the Jewish authorities. And uh, it says, verse 62, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? And what he's referring to is the Jewish leadership brought all these witnesses to, to testify against Jesus, to accuse Jesus of bad things that Jesus never did, right? And the hope was that through these false witnesses, they would find 
enough evidence to condemn Jesus and to put him to death. But the high priest can tell that none of this is sticking, right? Whatever they're throwing against Jesus, nobody in that room believes, right? And they cannot convict Jesus based on all these false accusations they've laid against Jesus. And so he's moving to plan number two here. Okay, I can't get anybody to accuse Jesus of anything that sticks. Let's say, see if I can get Jesus to condemn himself. And he says, uh, okay, it says, but Jesus kept silent, right? Nothing sticks. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So now he's asking Jesus to say whether he is, whether he really is claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Is this really what Jesus is claiming to do? And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. In other words, yes, it is true. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And based on that statement, actually, let me add, Jesus adds here, so let me finish the verse. It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus is talking here about his coming again. Right? The next time the high priest will see Jesus will be when Jesus is coming back. Right? And really coming to judge the high priest and everybody else who rejected him. So in a sense, Jesus is giving him a chance. Are you sure you really want to go through with this trial? Because let me tell you act number two of what's going to happen next. Right? Which is fair, very fair of Jesus to say here. But the high priest, based on Jesus' confession of claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God, is doing this. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? So now the high priest, so to speak, is turning to, to the jury, which is the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish authorities, and he's saying, you've heard his blasphemy. Well, what's his blasphemy? What did he say that was wrong? Nothing. But by saying he was the son of God, which was true, if it wasn't true, if you don't believe what he said, if you don't believe Jesus really is the son of God, the Christ, his claim to be that is technically blasphemy. Right? To say something wrong about God is blasphemy. If you are not God and you claim to be God, well, that is blasphemy. The only problem is Jesus really was God. Right? So there was no blasphemy, but, but the high priest is saying, you've heard what he said, you heard what he said is blasphemy, what do you think? They say he's deserving of death. Right? That's the penalty for, for blasphemy. And based on that, Jesus will be crucified. And so how is it that a person that has come close to believing in Christ has heard, God has shown him, his love for him, and he ultimately rejects and says, I don't believe Jesus really is who he claims to be. How did he crucify Jesus? Because he's now agreeing with the people who crucified Jesus. You've just agreed with the, the verdict against Jesus. I don't believe this man really is the Son of God. And since he claims to, say, to be the Son of God, he is a blasphemer, and as a blasphemer, he deserves to be put to death. Right? I mean, that's ultimately what you're saying when you're rejecting Christ. And so, 
a person who, who rejects Christ is now, in a sense, crucify him, him again. Right? He's, a, he's saying, I agree with those who crucified Jesus. It's a serious charge to deny Jesus, to call him a blasphemer, and to agree with those who sent Jesus to the cross. Okay. Um, so now we have an illustration here. And it's nice when the Bible provides its own illustration. As a teacher, I often feel challenged to come up with illustration to explain what I'm teaching. Right? I find that if I simply teach, I try to explain what the Word of God means, but I don't use any illustrations, you know, people don't retain or even understand often what I'm talking about. <laughs> By using an illustration, you're helping people capture the message, right? So here God has an illustration for us, right? So it saved me having to come up with an illustration myself. And that illustration is in verse 7 and 8. It says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. So the earth here represents a person in whose life God is working, right? And the rain that comes down, well, that's God providing for that uh, plot of ground what it needs to produce fruit, right? In our days, we have, uh, you know, irrigation system. I have a drip system, you know, in my house, and that helps me, you know, grow these nice tomatoes. These are not mine. I got that from the web, but mine looks just as good. Um, but in those days, you relied on rain. There was no irrigation system, right? You didn't have running water to your house. Now, you could go to a nearby well and, you know, pull out buckets of water, carry them to your plot of ground and pull the water on. But, I mean, that's, that would be backbreaking work, right? People very rarely did anything like that. They just relied on the rain. God sends the rain. And God does send the rain, right? He, 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 he uh, I think, pours his rain on the just and on the unjust, right? He loves people. He wants people to know him. He wants people to love him. And so he reveals his love to them, right? That's what this rain is that's coming upon the land. And, uh, and so it says, the, the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it. So here's a person. He takes in everything God gives and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated. So now if the person bears bears the kind of fruit that the person who's cultivating it desire, he receives a blessing from God, right? What is the fruit? Well, God wants us to love him back, right? He wants us to receive that love, and when we really receive that love, we really understand how much God loves us, we're saved, right? That's when you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. And because of that, and he, he made a place in heaven for you, and you lay hold on that, you know, love sprouts in your heart for him. Right? And that's what God is after, right? A relationship with us, this loving relationship with us. So that person receives a blessing from God. He continues to experience God's blessing, right? That's our lives. Our lives, once you are saved, if that fire cuts onto those big logs, it's there to stay, right? And that's the case. It is with us. We're, we're saved to always enjoy God's blessings. It's to, to never, be, never end. All right, but the other side would be if you bear thorns and briars. So let's say I cultivate my plant of land, my plot of land, 
but instead of, of the nice tomatoes that I carefully, you know, sawed in, I get this. Well, I'm not very happy with that plot of land. Right? And that's probably how God feels when he pulls his love into a person and the person rejects him and say, you know, you should, you deserve to die on the cross like you did. Right? I mean, <laughs> that's what it looks like to God. And uh, if I was a farmer, and that's what came out, <laughs> instead of the tomatoes or other things I've sown, I'm not going to continue to take care of that plot of ground. And uh, I wouldn't even bother trying to pull those out by my hand because that would be painful. I would just burn it, right? Assuming it wouldn't you know, spread and burn things that I care about. And that's, that's the case with God. Once, once he does everything he can to show his love to someone and that person rejects him, there's nothing left to be done, right? God, God cannot save that person, right? And so God's done working with that person. And you can say, you know, he's, he is now consigned to hell, right? There is nothing else left to do, right? God loves the person. He wants the person to have a loving relationship with him. The person rejects God, there's just nothing else, right, that God can do with the person. Okay, well, here's the good news, and we turn to it in verse 9. It says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. That's not what, what the author thinks of the people he's writing to, right? And, and he assures them, you know, we're using these words, but really the, the, the reason he brought this this condition up is to explain why he's not going to go into the gospel. This is not a letter to try to win back those who left, right? Some people have, have left, they've denied, they've rejected Christ, they left the church, and this is not a letter designed to bring them back. It's a letter for those who stayed, right? And it's to, like I said before, it's to try to blow that fire up again, to refresh them uh, in their love for God, right? To, to get that going again. We are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation. Right? So what are the things that they're confident in? What is it that assures the author that these people he's writing to really are saved? Now, we have to remember the author worked with these people, right? These are, and we'll see that at the very end. These are people he worked with, right? He knows them. And uh, the three things that I had listed down we can tell from the letter he would have known. First of all, these are people who persevered in the faith, right? They've held on to, to the love for Christ. The Bible says love never fails, right? And again, once that love is really is implanted in them, a person truly understands God's love for them and loves God back, he's saved. It's not going to go away. Right? So the fact that in spite of the persecution, in spite of the soldiers coming, dragging people to jail, taking other people's possessions, these people are holding on to God and saying, we're, we're going to continue to look to Christ, and we're going to continue to try to serve him, be faithful to him. Well, that's a really strong sign a person is saved, right? when they're holding on to God in the midst of persecution. Uh, second, he refers here to the work and labor of love. How can you tell that, that somebody loves someone? Well, you can tell it by their actions, right? And uh, we can, I can tell that about Calvary Bible Chapel by being here today. 
Now, just by listening to people speaking at, at the breaking of bread, I can tell the love people have for God, right? They speak well of him, right? Um, but also there's all these activities we're doing, right? We're, we're trying to reach out to the neighbors, and that takes a lot of work, right? Somebody is sacrificing their time to do these things. Why? Because they love God, right? The love to God is propelling them to do things they would not otherwise do. There's evidence in their life that they really do love God. The third thing <coughs> is uh, loving the brethren. He, he specifically points to that. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Right? This is something Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. Right? We love the brethren. Why? Because we love Christ. Right? These are Christ's brethren that we're loving. And we love Christ because he first loved us. Right? But it ends up with me showing love, practical love for the brethren. I, I'm guessing in their particular circumstance, so you have somebody who's being dragged to jail and his family is left behind with probably less provision and maybe what provision they had was also taken away by the soldiers and you're a, a fellow believer and uh, praise God, uh, you were not taken to jail too and uh, somehow the soldiers missed you in the search and they didn't take your possessions or provision as well. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, here's this uh, brother in prison and you know what, in those days, uh, the prison didn't feed you, right? If somebody you loved was in jail and you wanted them to survive the experience, you would provide for them, right? You will send food or you will come personally and bring food. And uh, so here am I, I still have provision in my house. One of my brothers or sisters in Christ is now destitute, they have nothing, another is in jail. Will I take what I have and share it with them, right? And will I take some and take it to the brother in jail, realizing there's probably people recording my name as I'm doing so, right? That was loving the brethren. That was ministering to the brethren. And when a person is doing something like that, you know what? They're probably saved, <laughs> right? They wouldn't be doing something crazy like that, right? Unless there was this real love in the heart, right? And that's what the author is referring to when he says we are confident concerning... He does, he's not just saying it to be nice. He really is confident. These people he's writing to really are saved, right? Because of this evidence that is there in their lives. And then he also used the statement, for God is not unjust to forget uh, your work and labor of love. And what I think he's referring to is reward. God has the first word of love and the last word of love. I used to play this game sometime with my kids where you know, I would put my hand on their hand and then they would put their other hand on my hand. And then I'd take my hand and put it on top of their hand. Right? And then they'd sometimes slip their hand from underneath mine and put that on top. Right? You know, it's a fun game. And uh, that's the way it, it works with God's love. Right? You know, God is the first one who shows his love to us. Well, we then show love to God. But you know what? Then God shows his love to us again. And that's speaking really of the reward. God will have the last word of love. Right? We'll never do an act of love for God that he will not reward us for. And uh, he says that in Matthew chapter 10. 
uh, verse 40, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So that's Christ's promise. Every time we're serving a brother or sister in Christ in a sacrificial way, God is keeping count. Right? And he rewards us. Right? We didn't do it because God was going to reward us, but he wants to reward us nonetheless. Right? His will be the final word of love. Okay. And then we go here to the purpose. Why is this author writing these things to us in verse 11 here? He says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. So it suggests to me the fact that he, he, he's, he's using this word suggests that something has changed, right? So the, the Hebrew believers, they were this roaring flame of fire of love to God. And yet after the years of persecution, and my best guess um, is that uh, this, this uh, epistle was written probably near the end of a period of maybe four or five years of persecution. So these believers have been under persecution for four or five years probably, and, uh, and it seems that the fire has ebbed low. People are, are discouraged, right? People are, uh, are not really showing their love for God as much as they did before. They're not showing the love to the brethren as much as they did before. It's still there inside those big logs. Remember, that fire doesn't go away. Right? If, if you're saved, there's still a love there. It never completely disappears. But to an outside observer, they may not see very much of it. Right? At least for some of them, that seems to have been the case. Or he wouldn't have to say this. Right? And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence of the full assurance of hope until the end. Um, All right, and uh, he, he stresses that this love should be shown to the end. Uh, I know some of us may have retirement plans, or at least that's typical in the world, that you'll have a retirement plan, right? I'm working now, but I'm hoping to stop at 65, right? So I can, I don't know, relax or have fun or maybe serve the Lord to a greater measure. Uh, there shouldn't be any retirement plan for good works, right? It shouldn't be, well, I'll serve the Lord now. I'll really be busy for him. But when I hit 65, I'd like to be able to stop, right? <laughs> That's somebody else's turn to do good works. It doesn't work that way, right? God wants us to show it until the end, right? Continue serving him until the end. And there's a benefit for that. So we already talked about the benefits of reward. Every time we do something for the Lord, he rewards us for it, right? But he also says here, um, to the full assurance of the hope. And I think what he's referring to is we gain assurance by being this living fire, right? If, if, if I'm living a life of love toward God, then it, I have reason for assurance, right? If I'm not living a life of fire toward God, it's really hard to see I have a love for God. I might doubt, right, my salvation. And I think we could see it perhaps in uh, 1 John chapter 3, he says, my little children, 
Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. So as I live a life of fire to God, as my life is filled with acts and service of love to God, I'm filled with confidence, right? Now, my salvation is not based on, on living a life of service to God, but it still gives me an assurance that perhaps otherwise I would struggle with, right? Um, everyone who, who's trusted Christ will be in heaven, but it's possible to you to lose confidence of that, right? And that's likely to happen if you're not living a life for God, right? If you're one of those logs, the fire is in the middle, but nothing is showing on the outside, right? You don't want to be in that position. Much better to live a life of, of fire, a life of fire of love for God. And then he warns us, he says, that you should not, you do not become sluggish. That's the other Danger. That's what he's trying to save them from. I don't want you to, to be sluggish. And uh, I don't know about you, I don't use the word sluggish very often, so I'll go to the dictionary to find out exactly what it means. And the word sluggish uh, means the following, slow-moving or inactive. It can mean lacking energy or alertness, or it can mean slow to respond or make progress. And it makes me think of this animal back there. Anybody knows what that is? It's a sloth, yeah. What does sloth do? They move really slowly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we don't want to be a sloth, right, in our, in our love for God. Um, we want to, to be diligent, right? We want to move quickly, right? The opportunities we have to serve God. Uh, let's say that, you know, I, I, I've seen this thing happen. My brother was taken to jail, and another family here is, is needy, and I'm, you know, kind of thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Well, I, I'm not quite sure. I'll pray about it. And, uh, you know, I forget. And a week or two pass by, and uh, the brother may have died in prison, right? Because nobody cared for him. Uh, the family uh, may have moved off, right? Because nobody cared for them here. And the opportunity is lost, right? I don't have opportunity to show love to God in this situation anymore, right? Sometimes there's limited opportunities. If, if you're very slow in responding, then you may find that you don't respond at all, right? You're not, you missed your opportunity to show Love to God, love to the brethren. Uh, why is a sloth so, so slow? This is a, your science moment for the day. I sometimes try to do a little bit of research. Uh, scientists believe the reason they move so slow is because of their diet. Right? These guys eat leaves. Right? There's very little protein in it. It takes them a really long time to digest it. And as a result, they have very little energy to spend. So a sloth has to move slow because he has very little energy to, ex to actually exert for the mo movement. And I think that's one of the things that can affect our own fire for God if we don't have a lot of fuel. If I don't have a lot of fuel, I will not get a lot of... Where do I get the fuel for the fire? Well, I get it in the Word of God, right? I get it as I understand God's love for me. 
right? So that's why, it, why it's so critical to be spending quality time with God in the Word of God. Could be coming to church and being encouraged, right? A brother coming alongside. We need input, right? We can't just continue to do things without there being something from the inside. God is not interested in us to, to just do works when we're not feeling anything on the inside. It has to come out of a love for God. So, you know, it could be that sometime we need to stop what we're doing and go back to the scripture, back to the Lord. Seek a, a refreshment from him. Seek him to fill us out so we have something to give, right? And we can't generate it on our own. It has to come from him. And then finally, we have one more help here uh, in, in the, the chapter for us, and this will be uh, the end. It says, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God knows that uh, we struggle, and uh, he provides for us different helps along the way. And one of the helps is examples, right? And uh, we can find examples in different places. Uh, we can find them in the scripture. And the next person we'll look up, the next passage we have uh, in a few weeks will be Abraham, right? We'll look at Abraham, and we can see examples of people in the scripture and how they chose to believe God and serve God and love God. And that can be an encouragement to us. There can be a, uh, a brother or a sister that we know. And, and their life of devotion to God acts to encourage us along. How encouraging it was to have someone like Bill McDonald in our midst to, who served the Lord to the end. Uh, you can think of uh, Jim Gibson. And uh, I remember he would say something like uh, he wanted to, uh, to uh, die in the saddle, right? He wanted to, to be serving the Lord till the last moment, right? Uh, what I found helps me too is uh, listening to Christian biographies or reading about Christian biographies. It's a privilege we have today uh, that people in the past didn't have. I, I can be driving to my work and at the same time be hearing the story of uh, D.L. Moody. Right, and the life of faith you live for God. So if you haven't tried it, I strongly recommend picking up a Christian biography. Uh, study the lives of, of some of the people in the past uh, and see, see how they lived out for God. It's an encouragement uh, to us today. Okay, so my last uh, challenge for you, how is the fire uh, in your life? How is the fire in your life? Is it, uh, is it uh, blazing? Are you living a life of, uh, of faith and good works to God, serving the brethren, or, or did it die down, right? And uh, it's, it exists just there in the center, right, where nobody can see. Well, God wants, wants to see your life of love lived out for him. So let us go and do so. Father, thank you for your love for us. We recognize it's you who first loved us and sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to be our Savior. Otherwise, we would have no love at all uh, to give. And uh, we do pray that you, uh, you uh, continue your work in our lives, continue stirring up uh, uh, the logs, the fire, the embers, and uh, give us a, a fresh breath of your love to, uh, to excite a life of love lived out for you. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.